Hello, chronic illness warriors and allies. Today, I am interviewing Beth O'Hara. She is a functional naturopath, and she incorporates genetic analysis, naturopathy, and emotional wellness in her professional services. Uh, she's also a functional genomics analyst. Very cool. Uh, and she created the Mass Cell 360 practice, which is functional naturopathy for people struggling with mast cell activation syndrome and related disorders. Uh, she has mast cell activation syndrome, naturally, as well as histamine intolerance, chronic fatigue syndrome, hypermobility syndrome, and fibromyalgia, both of which I personally have, uh, as well as mold illness and oxalate issues. In this episode, Beth breaks down a lot of what these conditions are, how they relate to others um, in your environment, in your genetics, a lot of stuff that you can't Google very easily. And what's great is she also talks about it from her perspective as a patient and a very knowledgeable practitioner. I think you guys are going to get a lot from this episode. She's extremely knowledgeable, inspiring, kind, and it was an enormous pleasure to talk with her. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey, welcome, Beth, to the Invisible Not Broken podcast. So glad you're on today. It's great to be here with you. I've been really looking forward to this. Yes, we've been chatting quite a bit back and forth. Uh, I'm really glad that you reached out uh, wanting to like look into this. It means so much to us when you know people reach out after listening to the podcast, getting inspired and want to wanting to talk about their story. So, so let's, let's start with your story. You're both a patient and practitioner. So uh, yeah, take us on that journey. Okay, sure. So, well, I, I have a um, mass activation syndrome and histamine intolerance. And um, one of the things that stirred that up for me is mold toxicity. I also have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and EDS hypermobility. Um, so just throw that on just, just some EDS yeah. on the side. <laughs> All these different factors. It's kind of funny. It's like, I found out about the first thing I found out about was the fibromyalgia, you know, when I was in my early twenties and it was just like little by little, but if I really back up, I didn't feel well my whole life. I had odd, um, allergy reactions as a kid, grew up in the country. We always had, um, Farms us, and if I had to feed the chicken, I would break out hives. If I had to snap, snap, I would break out in hives. Uh, but I also had this really fascination with the body and with medicine early on. So at age six, I wanted to be a physician. That was our little like uh, first grade kind of recital thing. You had to pick you what your profession was going to be, you know. So I had, um, I was going to be a doctor. And I was really serious about this. So my whole like childhood was preparing to go to medical school. And um, for my 16th birthday, all I wanted was Grey's Anatomy. So mm -hmm. I was a little giddy <laughs> as a kid. Um, but I share that because that's how uh, passionate I was about it and driven about it. And then I got into college and I was doing all this independent research and a lot of different things. Um, but I was getting more and more exhausted and more fatigued. And I had a full scholarship to go to medical school and I had to turn it down. Mm, so that was it's just heartbreaking. 
It was like, I try not to talk about it, you know, too much because I'm going to start, I'll start crying, but, um, it really was, it was really heartbreaking because I had no idea what else to do with my life. I didn't want to do anything else with my life. Now though, I'm really glad that happened. Um, I'm not glad it happened because I was so sick. Um, but it took me on this whole other journey to where I am now. So one of the things that happened was I was taking um, yoga as a PE class because I had to have two PE credits in college and I was not in good enough health to take basketball or track or whatever, you know, and I, this was over 20 years ago. So uh, there wasn't a lot of yoga and especially where I grew up out in the country, we didn't have yoga. There was no yoga. So I didn't really know what it was. I thought yoga was chanting Om for an hour and then taking a nap. So I thought, well, I could definitely do that because I can nap. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, But there was something about the mindfulness of it that I knew would be really helpful. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't know I had EDS at the time. Um, But um, I ended up becoming a yoga therapist and uh, was really dedicated to that for quite a while. Unfortunately, the yoga made my joints worse. So now I know if you have EDS hypermobility, you don't want to stretch, especially three hours of stretching. Um, Yeah, uh, it's a hard (laughs) thing for me too. I have a love-hate relationship with yoga. You know, I have joint hypermobility syndrome and I love the breathing and I love stretching because I'm also a past dancer, like stretching is the best. But then if you go too far, or there are certain poses, oh, it's just, it's torture. (laughs) Well, and what happens for me, I'll have a lot of pain relief initially. And then the next day or the next two days, I'll start having terrible muscle spasms. And it took me years to connect that, that it was because my joints were getting less and less stable with the stretching. Um, So I don't do yoga anymore. Um, I, I still practice a lot of the mindfulness, but out of that, I studied meditation and mind-body connections. Um, I got really involved in a system called the Enneagram, which is a personality system for uh, emotional, social intelligence, and um, personal growth and spiritual growth. So I taught that all over the U.S. and some different countries. And um, but that love was always there still for the the health aspect and. And I, in the meantime, I was just having all these bizarre health issues nobody could figure out. So like I said, started with the joint or the muscle pain, the fibromyalgia pain, um, and a lot of fatigue. So I'd have periods where like I got hit riding my bicycle one time when I was in my early 20s, got hit by a truck. Uh, And I wasn't like, it's not like I got run over. It was like, he just tapped me and knocked me off my bike because the truck was so big. He didn't see me. Um, And I was kind of bruised and, you know, scraped up, but nothing broken or anything like that. And I ended up in bed for three weeks. I couldn't get out of bed. So it was just these odd things continuing on. And my joints got worse and worse to where I could hardly walk. So I had to use a cane just to make it to the bathroom. And I was bedridden. Um, I didn't work for a year. And that was one of the hardest periods of my life was that year. I was that extreme anxiety. Um, 
dark depression, but I don't know anybody that's bedridden that's not depressed. <laughs> it's kind of hard to, you know, be cheery and excited when you're bedridden. And I had seen at that point um, over 50 practitioners. So I actually told, tallied it up one time because I was really curious, like how many people I'd seen for these health issues and these health mysteries. And I'd spent over $100,000. And I went to, uh, yeah, <laughs> I went to um, functional medicine doctor. And this back then functional medicine was new, but it was the functional medicine physician that had the most experience in this area. Um, he was still a bit of a drive from, from me. And just getting to his office was quite a, a trip. And um, I've been seeing him for a couple of years, tried all kinds of things. I had tried medications. I tried supplements. I tried homeopathy. I mean, you name it. I tried it. I did therapy. I did everything. And he, um, this functional medicine doctor, um, just really honestly said, I don't know what else to do for you. I'm, I'm at the end of what I know to do. We've tried everything I have. And I cried the entire drive back. It was an hour drive. And I thought, what, what am I going to do? I don't have any quality of life. It takes me a week to build up to be able to go to this doctor's appointment and then a week to recover. And I, I couldn't work. I just didn't feel like I had anything to give to the world. And I had been just studiously reading everything I could get my hands on about chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and some of the issues I had. I thought I had autoimmune. We thought we, I had uh, rheumatoid arthritis. I didn't. Um, but I, you know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to keep living. And so the one thing that, that kept me from doing anything was I didn't want to do that to my husband and my stepdaughter. But I reached out to a group of women, a small group of women um, on Facebook that Yasmina Yakeliston had started. She was a um, histamine intolerance expert. And some of us were healthcare practitioners. I was doing health coaching at the time. And um, we just supported each other because we were all the group of people nobody could figure out. And I just told them, I said, this is what happened when I went to the doctor today. I don't know what else to do. Um, I just don't really want to live. And this woman, friend of mine in the Netherlands, immediately wrote back and said, run your 23andMe, get your genetic data. I bet you're going to find some answers. And I'm like, okay, I had no idea what 23andMe was. I didn't know, you know, I knew there was genetic testing and it had some genetic testing, but it was always like very limited. So I started looking into it and she said, read this woman named Amy Yasko. She was one of the early functional genomic practitioners. And, um, and I was super overwhelmed because I didn't know how to figure any of this out. And she said, I'll step you through it. I'm so grateful to her because she did. She's got me started. She stepped me through it. We were just looking at 32 genes back then, um, 32 genetic variants. But I started to find some big answers in terms of why I had massive anxiety and much worse insomnia with L-glutamine and why I couldn't take curcumin, which is a great anti-inflammatory, but for me, it made me worse. And all these things I was trying were making me worse. And the genetics 
the genetic variants were starting to show me the biochemistry of what was happening in my body that was so different than most people. And so now I, I just loved it and I threw myself into it. I wasn't working anyway, so I had full time. I could study that full time. So give me something to do. And uh, now we're up to over 10,000 beings. Um, and I got my health back to a point that I went back to school and I got a master's in marriage and family therapy because I love the mind-body connection and then went to naturopathy school and did some different functional medicine programs. And here I am. That's kind of how it's evolved. I mean, that's quite a story. And you know, in the last like five seconds, you've lost over many years of a lot of hard work. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. You're like, naturopathy school is four years of essentially medical school. You know, it's just a different time that's more a uh, type that's more holistic. Um, and also becoming a therapist. Like those are not small things. <laughs> well, I didn't become a licensed therapist. I did the the education, but then there's a whole, you know, you have to do, you have to do a whole licensure. Yeah. Thing. So I'm not a licensed therapist, but it was, you know, it is hard work. Um, I found programs that just work for me um, because I have the health issues I do. And I was able to design my own naturopathy program. And that really made a difference for me and helps. And um, it has been though, I guess I don't like to think about it. It has been a lot of work, um, trying different foods, trying different supplements, mapping out my biochemistry, mapping out my genetics, taking all these genetic certification classes and um, really getting up to speed. So yeah, I did kind of fast forth through all that. A lot. It's a lot to be proud of that. And you put a lot of time and effort and love into all of that. Um, yeah. Something I've, I've noticed a lot lately because I've been talking so, so many patients, like more than usual lately, uh, is that everyone wants to contribute. Like you said, like you, you felt like, you know, purpose was lacking in your life and mm -hmm. you wanted, and when you were able to, you wanted to throw yourself into something that would help you and also help other people. Um, exactly. so yeah. Uh, doing something really good and worthwhile and something that needed exploring. Um, it did. And thanks to you, you know, you are helping a lot of people and yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was trying to find a practitioner that could help me was really hard. And I found, I did find people that could help here and there. Um, Yasmina and her work probably helped me the most in terms of his, her histamine, uh, work with histamine tolerance and mast cell issues. But I had, there were so many practitioners who told me that um, because my labs were normal, I was making everything up. It was all in my head. I was diagnosed as bipolar. I'm not bipolar, but I was diagnosed as bipolar. Um, I was told that I was psychosomatic, which is a whole misuse of that word because yes. psychosomatic. It's supposed to just mean how the mind state influences the body and the body state influences the mind. But because I got so misused, now we call that psychoneuroimmunology instead. That was my studies. <laughs> By the way, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia during that degree, not yeah. knowing, not knowing <laughs> that that was what was going on, which I thought was, you know, I guess that's not a coincidence. Um, but yeah, I actually am an advocate for clarifying what psychosomatic means. I talk about it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, because 
and maybe this is a bit of an insecurity, but when I tell people I have fibromyalgia, if I feel like there's a bit of confusion or maybe they've heard that it's psychosomatic, I kind of immediately jump into, you know, I have a psychosomatic illness, but that's not what a lot of, you know, when you hear that, a lot of people think that means we're making it up, but it really means that there was something emotional and psychological that has manifested physically and it is legit pain. <laughs> we are. You know, if we really think holistically, and that's why I want to call my practice Mass Cell 360, when we're thinking about the whole thing, our mind states make biochemical changes in the body. That's how the mind works. Yeah. The brain's only functioning because there's these neurotransmitter changes, hormone, you know, and neurohormone changes, neuroendocrine changes. And, and at the same time, there's always simultaneously the genetic component. So whatever the predisposition was, the environmental component, what's happening biochemically, a lot of um, large, large percentage of people with fibromyalgia have elevated oxalates, which are often connected with kidney stones, but those oxalate crystals can lodge in the joints and in the, in the muscles. And that's how I got off the cane was, um, you know, people kept saying, well, I think you have, they called it palindromic rheumatoid arthritis, which meant you didn't present as the normal rheumatoid arthritis. So we're going to call it this other, you know, weird word for rheumatoid, but I never had elevated autoimmune markers. Right. And when I went on a low oxalate diet, about three weeks in, I was off that cane. I'd been using a cane for years on and off. Okay, I want to hear a bit more about that because not only do I think that's interesting and I've never heard anyone talk about that, but it could also be pertinent to me personally. So yeah, yeah can you go into a bit more detail of- Oxalates? Yeah, and like yeah. what's an oxalate-free diet actually? I don't even, I should know this. Um, okay, that's okay. No, it's a little obscure. I'm, I'm into the obscure stuff, so. Good, that's cool. <laughs> I'm always picking up the things that, you know, aren't mainstream, but- um, so oxalates are crystals that are created in plants that uh, they use as a defense mechanism to actually keep animals from eating them. And so if you eat too many oxalates, um, it can make people sick. Cows um, can get really, really ill eating a plant called poke or pokeberry. So anybody that grew up in the country, there's these um, plants, at least in the you know southern southeastern part of the U.S. that have these kind of big leaves and these big purple berries. And they always tell you those berries are very, very poisonous. Well, and so are the leaves. They're extremely high in oxalates. But other foods that are part of our natural, I mean, just like our normal Western diet can be higher in oxalates. Um, spinach is one of the highest oxalate foods. Sweet potatoes, I know. <laughs> uh, sweet potatoes, rhubarb. Uh, chard, almonds, these are some of the higher oxalate foods. Damn, I ate a lot of spinach, almonds, and sweet potato. <laughs> and beets. Well, this was what was so interesting and how I was able to start to piece this together was my joints would be worse in the winter and I would be on a king. And then um, every winter around the end of February, I would get to where I could not eat certain foods. They would just make me really, really sick. And I couldn't eat cooked foods. Well, what I finally figured out was that 
It was winter time when I ate tons of sweet potatoes. I love to put almond butter on my sweet potatoes. I ate more spinach uh, because it was harder to get good lettuce and uh, tons of roasted beets. And that was kind of what I lived on. Wow. Yeah. I, I won't lie right now. Like we're, we're doing a podcast. I, I guess there's a video too, but in my kitchen, I left out a box of spinach with almonds because I'm going to make a salad and I just boil a sweet potato. <laughs> That's literally what's out in my kitchen right now. So we don't, you know, we don't know if that's your issue or not, but when anybody comes into my practice that has fibromyalgia, um, I, if we can get genetic data, I love to look at genetic data because there's some predispositions to make us have higher oxalate levels. Mm -hmm. uh, and these our bodies produce oxalates as part of just our normal metabolism as well. And some people are over producers. So it's called hyperoxaluria. Um, but you don't have to have a genetic predisposition. So sometimes it's just overconsumption and people don't have, there's bacteria in the gut that will break oxalates down. They may not have that bacteria. Um, also, candida and other mold species produce oxalates as part of the metabolism. Mm. And, uh, and if you have a candida colonization in the gut or other mold species, then people can have excess oxalates. And that's part of the issue I got into. I grew up in an old farmhouse. There was tons of mold. And then um, I worked in a building. I worked on the lower level of an old historic building. And when I moved out and started taking my stuff off the wall, the plaster just crumbled from the water damage Eek. and the water seeping into the walls. Um, and there was a lot of mold down there as well. So, the more that I've um, moderated my oxalate intake and dealt with the fungal growth, then I can get more oxalate foods back on board, which is our goal eventually. We don't want to go crazy and hog wild with the spinach. and Yeah. But I see a lot of people come in because uh, they, they develop fibromyalgia after they start doing green smoothies. And they're doing, I had a woman who was doing, uh, uh, a nutritionist put her on a green smoothie three times a day and she was doing a total of I think it was like 10 cups of spinach a day mm. and massive fibromyalgia pain after that that's crazy yeah I mean so something I always like to well Monica likes to say on the podcast you know we're not doctors we don't pretend to be you are a doctor but sort of like writing off of that it what we really mean is like everyone needs to consult not just like with their own medical physicians, but because everyone's an individual, right? So like, we're not saying don't eat spinach. No, <laughs> absolutely. Wonderful. Absolutely not saying don't eat spinach. Just that it could be um, a, a root factor. So something to consider. And that's not even something that's a mind connection. I mean, stress also makes fibromyalgia worse. Oh yeah. But that's just an example of how there's also these biochemical components that people who just say, well, fibromyalgia is all in your mind, they don't really understand these biochemical mechanisms. Yeah. And I'm glad, oh, by the way, I don't, we're, we've probably published this after uh, fibromyalgia, fibromyalgia Awareness Day, but it's this Sunday. It's in two days on May 12th. I'm very happy about that. Um, it's always like, obviously the most supportive day all year round where everyone's like, talk about it. 
you know, explain it and make it a norm. And, and yeah, so I'm, I'm pumped about that. Uh, but you know, a big, a big part of that is not just saying that it's valid, like we're really feeling these things, but why, like why it's not just like, Oh, we have pain and we don't know why. Sure. On a, on an individual basis, it is hard to figure out why it is. Like there's a reason why we investigate for like sometimes decades at a time, right? Um, lose hope, uh, but it is you know very much physiological, not just our pain, but what's happening, um, like the the reasons for it. Um, I think there. I so far what I've read and heard and I guess experienced is that the most common denominator is quote unquote trauma or like mm-hmm. chronic stress. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, there are so many ways that people will or will not identify that way, but I personally believe that every single person with fibromyalgia has been chronically stressed or, or um, traumatized. Also because that's just, you know, life. A lot of people experience that and, yeah. um, and trauma is relative. I've talked about this on the podcast before that I know what my traumas are and they were not, you know, parents divorcing or rape or like, you know, abuse, anything that you would put technically, like, uh, not technically, typically, um, in that it was just, it ended up being stuff was traumatic for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, every person I think on the planet above a certain age has been chronically stressed. Right. And it's just how our body, our bodies decided to respond. It is. It, so it's this combination of genetic predisposition and then Right. What happens? And that's what epigenetics is. And that's really what I do is epigenetics. Epigenetics. Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite areas. It's funny. I un- I don't I don't know if it's unintentional or what coincidental. Um, I talk to practitioners on this podcast. I realize I have so much in common with because I studied neuro psych- uh, psychoneuroimmunology. Um, I studied nutrition science as specifically for uh, chronic illnesses and epigenetics. Like that was my thesis. So I feel like I always have this connection with the practitioners I talk to and I didn't even like intend for that. Yeah, I would love to read your thesis. Will you send it to me? Sure, yeah, it's epi- It's that's such a boring name. It's like, actually I don't remember in what order because it's just listing three things, but it's like um, epigenetics, prebiotics and colon cancer. I think that's just like the name. <laughs> That's awesome. I, yeah, I definitely want to read it. I'll, I'll share. I'll send you mine, which was on um, coherent breathing as a psycho, um, uh, psychoneuroimmunological intervention for mast cell activation syndrome. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> because I don't know about it in reference to mast cell, but uh, I, I promote, I'm not like a breathing expert, but I know from years ago when I had, I was in the hospital for um, food poisoning in Israel. And I was, I had food poisoning, like aftermath for about a month. And now my GI system is just not the same. Uh, But I remember some doctor saying to me, like, take deep breaths, like long, deep breaths. If you fill your lungs with more oxygen and your cells with more oxygen, your pain will like be better. Like, I'm not saying it will go away, but it will. And it worked. It worked so well. Um, And I'm sure you you can obviously back me up on this. Um, But yeah, actually, can you tell us? Forget about me talking about it. I want to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah. Well, if we back up a little bit, um, first I want to make a little caveat that I missed on the oxalates, which is if somebody's going to try low oxalate diet, not to go cold turkey because yeah. oxalates get stored in the 
bones and the tissues, and they can you can get a huge oxalate dump and actually get much worse and get kidney stones. So you have Ooh. to taper down really slow if you're going to try uh, low oxalate. And if anybody wants help with that, I'm happy to help with that. But um, just I always warn people: don't, don't, don't go cold turkey because people yeah. get really sick doing that. Um, but coming back to what what we're talking about now, you know, I I love what you're saying that you know so many people are chronically stressed and there are traumas that we don't call trauma in our culture. So uh, car accidents, surgeries, those kinds of things are traumatic. Going to um, a practitioner who you put your trust in and you're really vulnerable and they dismiss you and tell you that you're crazy and that you're making this all up. That's traumatic. And so that's why I really wanted to combine the emotional support piece with the biochemistry and the epigenetics and the practice because 80% of people I see have had some kind of early childhood trauma and a lot of people have had um, a lot of people have been dismissed and there's uh, quite a bit of just emotional stress, a lot that happens with our confidence when we get dismissed like that. And mm -hmm. so that's my, my passion is to bring all that together, help with the emotional healing, the physical healing. But with the psychoneuroimmunology, this is just a really fancy way. And the, the complete name, as I know you know, is psychoneuroendocrinoimmunology. Yes, it gets even longer. <laughs> How many can we add in there? And um, it just means psycho, referring to the mind, neuro, the nervous system, endocrino, the hormone system, and immunology, the immune system, and that they're all intricately linked. So we have a ton of immune cells in the brain, in the nervous system, uh, our mental state, our stress state, or if we're in a calm, happy kind of place, um, affects the types of hormones that are produced. Those hormones affect the immune system. They affect the nerve signaling. They affect pain, how it's being registered. Um, based on our mental state, it'll affect how our muscles contract or relax. So all of those things are involved. So we can definitely positively influence nervous system, the nerve pain, the immune system, and our hormones with things like deep breathing. I love coherent breathing, which is just matching your breath at a rate. So inhaling and exhaling at the same rhythm, five seconds, inhale, five seconds, exhale. There's apps you can get on your phone, like on Android, there's one called Cardio with a K and uh, it's called Breathing Zone um, on iPhone. And anything like that, Qigong, um, yoga, if you don't have EDS hypermobility, um, and anything that's soothing, even laughter really positively affects uh, what this axis that we're talking about and singing, so singing relaxes that vagus nerve that connects the mind. And I love the, the vagus nerve because it connects the mind with the heart and the gut. So it connects our three centers of intelligence. And anything that increases vagal tone is gonna be helpful for these chronic illnesses and, and our healing and our healing state. Ooh, so singing? Singing, yeah, definitely. Wow. Yawning stimulates the vagus nerve. Yawning. 
Oh yeah. I hate yawning. <laughs> I, I said that this morning. I've been very tired lately. So I have, I assume this is related to my hypermobility. I have a, I mean, a pretty big mouth. Um, it doesn't look that big because I have a big teeth and a big mouth. So it balances, but I guess my jaw can open more than most people. So yeah. I open my mouth really wide. I did not know this till I was like in my twenties, someone pointed it out to me and I'm like, shit, <laughs> that's true. But anyway, when I don't know if everyone else does this, but when I yawn, I yawn to the maximum capacity, yeah. like stretch of my mouth. Which is not great if this is hypermobile. No. It hurts. <laughs> oh. I'm very visual. And <laughs> you want me to show you and anyone who watches this video? I was going to share. I don't want you to pop your, your jaw joint. I'm just, uh, I, my, my mind flashed on how uh, snakes can unhinge their mouths. Yeah. So it doesn't way, way wide. I don't feel it unhinged, but I think there is something like it clearly moves out a little bit. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess I, I naturally have a, like, I guess a wide ish mouth, but even so I, I, I just remember how I found out my friends like knew that I had a big mouth and didn't tell me it's like a weird thing that they would, I guess, would say no. about me. And then they're like, let's all try putting bottles in our mouths and see who can do it. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> and, I, and they all just looked at me and yo, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, where were we? Uh, oh, you said yawning, Vegas nerve, right. Um, what are some other cool things people can, you know, try to, to release, to connect? Well, one of, I think one of the most important is to let go of toxic relationships mm-hmm. because they're so stressful. And I, I, so many of my clients have had or have relationships with a friend or a family member that has a personality disorder, narcissism or borderline personality disorder or an addiction. Um, and then going back to something you said earlier, which was, these, you know, people with fibromyalgia often have these early traumas. Well, anytime there's an early stress state, and for my own example, my um, father had schizophrenia, and it really developed um, more significantly when I was born. And so that obviously was a very stressful time at a really young age. I don't have any memories of it, um, because it was pre-formative memory but that was there in the past and then I had ongoing stress you know as at a young age and so anytime we've got early stressors and especially the younger the stressor the more impactful it is Mm. and it impacts the genetic expression now what's also powerful about that I don't want people to go oh that's so depressing or no is that because these kinds of things can impact genetic expression, there's also so much we can do that positively shifts genetic expression. So this is why food changes can make such a big difference. Things like you were talking about needing the B12. Well, B12 is really necessary for methylation. It's necessary for DNA and RNA repair. Um, So our supplements can positively affect 
genetic ex expression, meditation or breathing, anything that puts us into a calm state and shifts us from that fight or flight to what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest, heal, restore side of the nervous system. But really um, letting go of toxic relationships, if it's possible to shift a job, if the job is too stressful to find something else. I created my practice to around my health. And so I'm not a morning person. Um, and I really like to have time to myself in the morning to get centered and just, I like to just poke around, you know, I just need that like slow start. Um, so I don't start till 12 o'clock and, um, that works for me. That works great for me. And then I don't mind working until the evening, but if we can find ways. I know that not everybody can do that, but when we can find ways to arrange our lives to, so that we can take care of ourselves. I think that that makes a really huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do think everyone can, maybe not in every way, um, or maybe some ways might take a while to shift. But I mean, anyone is welcome to reach out to me saying otherwise. And, and who knows, maybe I can or someone else can help. But I really do believe that we all have the power to shift our lives to um, to fit however we need to live. Like we have a say in our lives. We absolutely do, regardless of what that situation is. Um, and I can't agree with you more Like on the getting rid of toxic relationships. I've seen a huge shift in uh, the expression of my conditions uh, from getting rid of them. It was like my, I guess, sort of New Year's resolution a year ago. And I guess I did such a good job because I have a coach and she brought it up this New Year's time like letting go of toxic relationships, anyone who makes you feel anything negative, anything. And mm. I realized that I didn't have any. Mm. I got rid of them all. Nice. That was um, great. Yeah. So, and I try and, you know, tap into gratitude every single day, which by the way, if you guys don't do, I highly recommend it takes two seconds and yeah, it's really helpful. And, and it's even little stuff like I'll write down, I'm, I have gratitude for hearing birds outside my window right now. Mm -hmm. And I do like that actually makes me happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, not to go on a, a tangent, but I very often will write about people in my life who make me happy. So not just not having bad relationships, but having really good relationships. in my mm -hmm. life. Yeah. You yeah. That many. It could be, hopefully it's not just one, but even if it is just one, like one person that lifts you up so much and that's your person in your life and concentrate on that person. Right. Right. And, and I do want to say I, I, we do have choices and often people need somebody to help step them through. So, you know, if the toxic relationship is a parent or a sibling, or it can be really hard to shift those relationships. And sometimes we have to let them go completely. Sometimes it's about putting really good boundaries in place, but just finding somebody that can help, help you step through it and help you figure out how to do it and figure out how to do it on your own terms. So it's not like people just go, oh, well, this relationship's stressful. So I guess I'll cut them off and then they're done tomorrow. But usually right. it's a long process and it takes time, but it's very worth it, even though it can be hard and challenging. Yeah, you're right. And you bring up a good point there because um, my parents and I, like, we have a good relationship. Def there are definitely stressors, but generally I didn't ever have to consider cutting myself off. So I'm lucky there because I know not everyone is. 
and I don't have kids and I have a good marriage. So I won't lie. That makes it easier. Again, I have problems with all of them as we do with all relationships, but they're pretty good. So mine was mostly getting rid of, you know, people from my past otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, that yeah. really did negatively influence my life. But also what you said is right in that maybe you can't get rid of them and maybe you shouldn't get rid of them like your children <laughs> and your parents, hopefully, uh, but, and your siblings, but you can set boundaries and work on it. Right. right. There are things to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of relationships, I'd of course love to talk about patient practitioner relationships. You mentioned earlier that you saw like 50 of them spent a hundred thousand dollars, which is relatively typical or somewhere in there. We, I think almost everyone who has a chronic illness has been overlooked, has needed to see multiple practitioners and spend lots of money. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's the reason I created Wellacopia. And I think one of the, like the greatest currency that I spent was frustration mm. and upset and medical trauma. Like we we're talking about medical trauma earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would like to know more about what your experience was. And of course, you know, given that um, I built Wellacopia to help these patients find the right relationship, find the right practitioner, uh, I'd like to know how you define that. Like, the practitioner's uh, relationship? Yeah. I define it kind of differently. I really like to use the word client instead of patient. That's because fine. Because I see this as, um, I, I use that for myself and with the people that come in my office because I think it really sets up that this is a collaborative relationship, not a hierarchical, so I'm going to tell you what to do and then you have to go execute it, no questions asked. I don't work that way because it doesn't work when you have complex chronic issues. And so the way I see it, the way you know, I really set up in my practice is that when people come in, we have this dialogue about what's going on. And I'm also checking in on what's your budget like? Um, what kind of approach do you prefer? Is it, are you a less, you know, put out all the stops, do everything possible? Do you, are you a try one thing at a time kind of person? Um, somewhere in between. I want to know what this person's background is. I want to know what they've tried before and what they haven't tried. And then that way we can have a dialogue. Um, sometimes, so I always start with food changes when people come in. And sometimes people use food as an emotional coping tool. So if that's happening, I can't just go, oh, well, I'm going to give you this food list and I just want you to start following it and then I'll see you in four weeks. We can't do that. We've got to talk about, well, what are your favorite foods? What do you get out of those? How important is it? And then anytime we take foods out, what can we put in? Either what other foods can we put in or what other pleasure mechanisms? Because we as humans use food for pleasure. So that's how I, you know, really when I created Mass Health 360, wanted it to be the dream practice that I couldn't find when I was looking for someone to help me. And that's, so that's how I see what the practitioner-client relationship can be and what I see uh, more and more practitioners moving towards. And that's fantastic and amazing as we're going in that direction. Yeah, it's, it's taken a while, but actually, you know what one of the drivers of that is, having, having talked to a lot of practitioners, is the fact that in America, 
um, for all those who are not in America, uh, right now, doctors practices like these individual practices are being swallowed up by health systems and insurance companies. So they feel like they have no choice but to join them and like swallowed up is really the term they use. And then there are practitioners who have decided to go in the complete opposite direction, sort of like yourself and do, you could say concierge, functional medicine, out of pocket uh, practices. So you get to spend a lot of uh, a lot of time, like as much needed, build that real relationship rather than the seven minute visit um, that you know practitioners who take insurance have to do a lot of the time. And like, really, I, I want to put this out there uh, if I haven't before. A lot of it, most of it is really just not at the fault of practitioners. Um, first of all, like, sorry, I, I'm going to say standard medical doctors. Um, even though they don't work for a lot of us for this reason, I just, I really want to put it out there that it doesn't mean they're not good at their job and not good people. It's really that they've been taught a certain way. Um, and it's such a certain way. It's like going to the army that they have a hard time thinking out of the box and they're told not to. Like if the tests don't show it, what do I do? Right. Um, hopefully they have at least the wherewithal to say, I don't know, you should go to someone else rather than diagnose you with something incorrectly, which has happened to me a number of times. Um, but then I also wanted to say like the time, uh, the seven doc minute doctor visit or, or whatever, um, maybe it's a little more, a little less, uh, but they're constrained because the insurance doesn't pay them out much at all. And so in order to get to even pay their staff and uh, like for the center and themselves somewhat to live their lives, they have to see a ton of patients. Um, and then I, I just really want to get this out there because um, I, I talked to, I actually on Wellacopia, we call patients seekers because I don't like calling them patients either. Yeah. And since it's people are seeking help, that's anyway, small thing. Um, what was the gonna say? Uh, <laughs> right. So I, Patients talk to me about this all the time because on Wellacopia right now, while some practitioners might take insurance, we only display them as out-of-pocket practitioners because a lot of them are, like you, uh, it's you want to spend more time with them. You want to make sure that this is a very comprehensive, personalized situation. And in order to do that, you know, it, it is what it is, like financially. And so then patients say to me both things. They're like, the doctor doesn't spend enough time with me. They don't get me. They don't listen to me. And then when it comes to the practitioners that are like um, out of pocket, uh, then they say, oh, it's like they're trying to dip patients. And someone said to me the other day, trying to, I don't remember the expression, trying to grab a buck from you or mm -hmm whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I was defending and I said, like, look, I'm not saying there aren't people in the world like that, but these practitioners, they spend the time with you and they don't get reimbursed by insurance companies and whatnot. Like they're giving you exactly what you need. And if you right. find the right person, then that money is more than worth it. And luckily they get it. And I hope you guys get it. And I'm happy to talk about it more. Um, but they really even they they balance out completely like and i actually want to write a lot on that which is like insurance versus out of pocket and what makes sense for you and why they're on the same uh playing field level i'm really bad with expressions 
like really, really bad. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just wanted to say that um, because it's a, it's a real sore spot for people. Yeah. And I do know that uh, practitioners who are out of pocket might be amazing, but they're still not right for you. So you know, I'm not really like, obviously, you know, I care about what I do with Wellacopia, but I, I created it because I know these firsthand, these problems firsthand. And I talk to people all day who have these problems firsthand. I want to help you guys find the right person, not just like a great practitioner, but someone who's right for you. So you don't waste $400 or whatever on a visit or two. Um, so yes, I guess I wanted to ask you your opinions on that. And also what worked and didn't work when you were finding, when you were looking for practitioners. Well, I think those are excellent points. And when I became a practitioner, it was really eye-opening to me to talk to physicians who were in uh, private practice, who were trying to hold out from joining a managed care group. And I'm sure there are physicians who are afloat that are in private practice, but every physician I've talked to in private practice that hasn't joined a large group is in the red. They're not making money. Um, and then the other piece to it, even when it's out of pocket as practitioners, we have really high overhead. So my overhead is like between 60 and 65%. And I think that's easy to um, not realize when you're looking at how much it costs. And I had to make a choice. So when I went back to school, I made a choice about whether I was going to go into an insurance practice. So in Ohio, naturopaths um, aren't, can't take insurance anyway. Okay. In some states they can, in Ohio we can't. Um, so I really had to make a decision which direction where I was going to go. And when I was looking at the different factors and weighing them, there was no way I could ever do what I wanted to do in my practice. There was no way if somebody broke into tears that I would be able to spend 15 minutes just talking to them about what came up and what was going on and help step them through it. Or if somebody came in and said, well, I'm just really stuck on this because I have this stressful relationship with my partner and this is going on. There's no way to spend time going through that. If you're on insurance building, billing, they won't cover it. Um, so the practitioner doesn't get paid. And so our healthcare system is in a big mess right now. I think that's also why private pay practitioners have arisen. There's a huge need uh, for practitioners who can take the time. And there's just no way to get insurance reimbursed for that. I also like what you're saying about finding the, the right fit. It's kind of like, you know, if you have an electric vehicle, you're not going to take it to a car shop that only deals with gasoline engines. Yeah. <laughs> So how, how do you find the practitioner that's the right fit? And it's a combination of the right personality style, the right um, background and knowledge, and then access to knowledge because the stuff we're dealing with is super complex. So things like the mast cell activation syndrome, uh, which is one of my primary areas, and I'd, I'd like to um, link that with some of these other things we're talking about, DDS and the... Um, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, um, but it, it's so complex. And some of the people I've come in are, are really, really complex. And I have a lot of education and a lot of experience and I get people that stump me. So I have a whole team of um, 
kind of a community of collaborative practitioners and we email each other, hey, I have this case, um, I'm stuck, this is what we're doing. Or we have webinars where we bring on a case study and um, we can get 40, 45 practitioners to work through it together. And that's really cutting edge. Um, it's kind of, you know, newer for practitioners to have that extent of collaboration, but those communities are rising up. And people are shifting away from it being so competitive to being, no, we're all in this together for our clients. And if I don't know, I have to have resources. I have to have places to go find out. And that's, I would say that's what didn't work when I was um, looking for somebody and going from practitioner to practitioner. I didn't feel like people had a network that if they didn't know they were gonna touch base or they were gonna refer me to somebody that knew more, or you know, they were gonna really think about me at the end of the day and think about and go, well, you know, I'm actually having lunch with this other practitioner, so I'm gonna ask them if they've seen this before. And um, that would have made a big difference to me. The other was just finding who knew anything about what was going on because mass activation syndrome just got a diagnosis code in 2016. So we didn't even have a name for what I've had since I was a child. No one knew what it was, if it wasn't mastocytosis, which is a really severe mast cell disorder, or one of the other more severe mast cell disorders. There was no recognition of it. And if it's that way with mast cell activation syndrome, how many other things are going on that we don't have a name for it, yet, that we don't really know what it is? Oh, yeah. I think about that a lot. Yeah, and so that's how people keep going through the cracks. Uh, but what did work for me the best were the functional practitioners, the functional approaches, and doing what I think in my mind is what is really holistic practice, which is mind, body, emotions, spirit. So addressing all four of those and how they interweave together. So. I didn't, I, I got better doing genetic analysis and supplements and that really helped and I hit a plateau and then I got a lot better doing emotional work and healing some um, past issues and uh, working on emotional expression and feeling comfortable with myself and vulnerability and I got much better with that because my stress went down, looking at my thought patterns, um, having that sense of meaning and purpose and um, and access to something that's spiritual, whatever people's beliefs are, doesn't matter what the system is. All of those things made a huge difference. And then like practicing the breathing was amazing because I had done yoga for a long time and I had done pranayama, which is the yoga breaths. But I didn't, well, when I found the coherent breathing, I was still really sympathetic dominant. So I would wake up and feel like my hair was on fire, even though I had no energy. I felt like I had to like fly through my life. So that was a hard, um, it's that like really wired, tired kind of feeling. And I was just so in that sympathetic dominant. And it took about three months of practicing the coherent breathing for the effects to shift to how I felt outside of doing it as the practice. And eventually it was like this kind of like a light switch flipping. And I could tell I had switched to parasympathetic dominant. 
which felt so amazing. And so if, whether finding a practitioner understands all of these different aspects and functional practitioners, many of them are starting to include these, um, or finding practitioners who are specialists in these different areas. So you've got them covered. That, that really worked for me. Can you actually explain what functional means um, to our audience? I actually realized most people probably don't actually know. I haven't even thought about explaining that before. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Functional means looking at what's going on underneath, looking at the root causes and addressing those root causes. And so um, let's just take mast cell activation syndrome. So, and I'll describe what that is in a little bit, but um, in more detail, but it's an immune dysregulation. And if we took the tr traditional medical approach to it, it would be, okay, so this is an immune dysregulation. It's causing elevated histamine levels, causing other elevated inflammatory molecules. So we're going to have you take anti-inflammatories like um, Tylenol and ibuprofen or aspirin. Um, we're going to have you take um, medications like Allegra and Claritin or some prescription antihistamines, maybe Cellular, and you're going to manage it. So that's traditional healthcare. You're going to manage it. And that's what pharmaceuticals are based on. Or, um, most of them are managing symptoms. Functional practice is going, what's under the surface? Why is this immune dysregulation there? What is causing it? And so with mast cell activation syndrome and a lot of different chronic conditions, so even fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue, EDS has a component in this, the EDS hypermobility, um, their food triggers are um, one of them. And so, and there's a lot of different possibilities for food triggers. There's infections, there are um, toxicity. So we could have toxins build up like heavy metals, but also biotoxins like from lime or mold. Um, there's genetic predispositions that can cause inflammatory issues, that can cause detox issues, that can cause chronically low levels of certain nutrients um, that can affect our collagen and contribute to things like um, EDS, the uh, hypermobility issues. Mm -hmm. And then there are nutrient deficiencies. So anybody eating a standard American diet has nutrient deficiencies as malnourished. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But many of us with chronic issues, if we figured out that food triggers might be involved and then we're trying different diets, like for example, the way I have to eat right now, and it will improve, but right now the way that I have to eat to manage my symptoms is low histamine, low oxalate, low lectin, low glutamate, low carb. It's a lot of low. A lot of lows. <laughs> and so certain things can get low, like B vitamins if you're not eating grains, or if you've got any kind of gut issue, you might not be absorbing those. So checking nutrients. Yeah. Uh, how, what's the, what are the nutrient statuses? Another one that a lot of people don't think about is hypoxia, which just means low oxygen. Many people with EDS hypermobility have where the trachea will partially collapse and you have airway obstruction. 
or uh, in my example, I have both the trachea is a little too soft, so that's the um, airway down to the lungs, and my tongue is too big for my mouth. So I have a very tiny mouth and a huge tongue. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> <Honestly> problems. <laughs> and so when I lie down, my tongue falls back in my throat, and I, I always felt kind of like panicky when I would lie down. Um, so I've done this way. I have braces on now. I'm getting my dental arch expanded, so there'll be more room for my tongue. It's really helping the throat tension. Oh, great! Sleeping so much better. So that's a that's going to be an underlying factor in a lot of chronic issues, hormone imbalances, and then we've already talked about stress and um, early traumas. So that is a functional practice. It's looking at the why, the what's underneath. And how do we dress it so you can heal and uh, not just manage your symptoms for the rest of your life, but actually improve? Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I, that's how I've always e easily distinguished it is like management versus, um, actually, what is the word I use? But basically uh, digging deep. Actually, yeah, like you said, underneath the surface, what's underneath the surface, what's at the root versus let's put a Band-Aid on or let's just make sure you manage it. And we do use management as a general term for chronic illness, but make sure that management isn't Band-Aid style and rather like the root cause sort of management because it's not going to go away for a lot of us, but how can we make it better and live with it for the rest of our lives or like be symptom free? You know, we... I, people who have these conditions forever and live symptom free. Right. Uh, and that's still technically managing it, but at least it's from the right place. Right. Right. And I think many people, not, not everyone, and I'm not symptom free, but I can tell you, I am so much better than I was. I work full time. I run my own business. I can walk two miles, whereas I used to barely get to the bathroom. Um, I, you know, sleep about eight hours a night now instead of 12 and, you know, still have more food restrictions than I would like, but I'm working on it. And it, it's just, this is a whole different life. I mean, it's just completely different and I can travel and I have to, you know, I have to bump my supplements when I travel, but I travel and I scuba dive and I get to do all kinds of things now that I can do before. It's very inspirational. I like that actually. Uh, that's one of the best parts about bringing practitioners on. I've I've found is uh, because of the reasons you guys became practitioners, which is you know relevant or related to your your stories. You guys have found success, and not only have you found success, but now you're bringing it to others, and it's just it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a wrap on our episode today for Invisible Not Broken. Again, I'm your new co-host, Eva Lana Minkoff. I'm also the founder of Wellacopia. We match people with chronic illnesses to their best suited practitioners, those who really listen to you, know your conditions, and look at you as more than a condition, but as a full human being, as they should. Wellacopia is basically a dating site. Think Match.com, not Tinder and the swipey ones. Since we're just starting to build out nationally, if you can't find a practitioner that's a good fit for you in your area yet, please feel free to reach out to me personally. 
just shoot me a quick email, contact at wellacopia.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Invisible Not Broken. And as always, be kind, be gentle, and be badass.